1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour is another episode of the Ask Noah Show. Kicks off huge week in Linux. Absolutely huge week. We got so much content to get to. I cannot waste any time with with the ordinary pleasantries. Linus Torvalds has said that he is stepping back from the Linux kernel development. Now, it's not permanent. At this point, it is a temporary solution. Linus describes it as a way for him to work on some tooling, as a way for him to fix a problem, essentially. Most of the time, when you have a problem with a tool, it's a problem with automation, it's a problem with software. This time, Linus has identified the problem as a human issue, as a issue with his understanding of other people. And needless to say, the Linux world has lost its mind this week. I want to be very clear about this up front. I want to have an open and honest discussion about this. To that end, I will give an open mic to anybody that wants to come on the program to defend the decision to enforce a code of conduct. I'll give them open mic to anybody on the program who thinks that this is beneficial, that Linus is stepping back there. Are, oh, I only have two requirements. You have to be willing to agree in writing that we will have an open, honest, calm, rational discussion. And that when that discussion is over, you're not going to use your platform to try to torpedo this show. I invited Paul M. Jones to come on the show today to talk a little bit about what is going on in the Linux world, because if anybody understands this stuff, it is Paul M. Jones. Now, Paul has been on the program before. He was also a guest speaker at Southeast Linux Fest and spoke at the keynote last year when, if you remember, one of our one of our most, I would say, most successful episodes is episode 80 of The Ask Noah Show, where Jeremy Sands comes on and talks to us about the nitty gritty dirty inside secrets to Southeast Linux Fest. A lot of that is related to what is happening this week. It is the same driving forces. So far online, much of this has been very well accepted. A lot of people are reacting very positively to it. There and some of the people that are reacting negatively are doing so in an unfair way. They're dragging all sorts of irrelevant information. They are falsifying information. They are attacking individuals and making personal attacks rather than arguing the merits and demerits. Those are the kinds of things that I will not allow to happen as long as my name is attached to this show. So if that's the kind of environment you want to create, you're not welcome here. But if you want to add your voice to the discussion, I invite you to do so. There's a couple ways to do it live right now. You can call us at one 855 450 notes 855-450-6624, or you can join us in our interactive Mumble Room. That's mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. And join us in the on-air channel. Ping me in the chat room, irc.geekshed.net, pound Jupiter Broadcasting, and I'll put you on the air. We can have a discussion. I think uh, Paul's going to be here probably around, they told him to come in. And we we try and keep the first half of the show open because as always, your calls will go to the front of the line, so he'll probably be with us here in the second half. But I want to start by going through what Linus himself wrote. Because I think that if we're going to have an open and honest discussion, it starts by talking about the facts as they are. Not my opinion, not my interpretation of the facts, but in Linus's own words, what he said he's doing and why. From LKML.org, Linus writes, The discussion, both in public, mainly on the Kernel Summit discussion lists, and then a lot in various private communication about maintainership and the Kernel community, some of that discussion came about because of me screwing up my schedule for the Maintainer Summit where these things are supposed to be discussed. And don't get me wrong. It's not like this discussion in itself is new this week. We've been discussing maintainership and community for years. We've had a lot of discussions, both private and on mailing lists. We have regular talks and conferences, again, both the public speaking kind and the private hallway track kind. No, what was new last week is really my reaction to it and me being perhaps introspective. You be the judge. There were two parts to that. One was simply my own reaction of having screwed up my scheduling of the Maintainer Summit. Yes, I was somewhat embarrassed about having screwed up my calendar, but honestly, I was mostly hopeful that I wouldn't have to go to the kernel Summit that I've gone to every year for about the last two decades. Yes, we got it rescheduled, and no, my, well, maybe you can just do it without me there, got overruled. But that whole situation then started a whole different kind of discussion. And kind of incidentally to that one, the second part was what I realized that I had completely misread some of the people involved. This is where the look at yourself in the mirror moment comes in. So here we are. Me, on one hand, finally realizing that it isn't actually funny or a good sign that I was hoping to just skip the yearly Colonel Summit entirely. And on the other hand, realizing that I had really been ignoring some fairly deep-seated feelings in the community. It's one thing when you can ignore these issues. Usually, it's just something I didn't want to deal with. This is my reality. I am not an emotionally empathetic kind of person, and that probably doesn't come as a big surprise to anybody, least of all me. The fact that I have misread people and don't realize for years how badly I've judged a situation and contributed to an unprofessional environment is not good. This week, people in our community confronted me about my lifetime of not understanding emotions. My flippant attacks and emails have been both unprofessional and uncalled for, especially at times where I made it personal. In my quest for a better patch, this made sense to me. I now know that this was not okay, and I am truly sorry. The above is basically a long-winded way for me to get the somewhat painful personal admission that, hey, I need to change some of my behavior, and I want to apologize to the people that my personal behavior hurt and possibly drove away from kernel development entirely. I am going to take some time off and get some assistance on how to understand people's emotion and respond appropriately. Put another way, when asked at conferences, I occasionally talk how the pain points in kernel development have generally not been about the technical issues, but about the inflection points where development flow and behavior changed. These pain points have been about managing the flow of patches and have often been associated with big tooling changes moving from making releases with patches and tarballs, and the very painful discussions about how Linus doesn't scale back 15 plus years ago to using Bitkeeper and then to having to write Git in order to get past the point of that no longer working for us. We haven't had that kind of pain point in about a decade, but this week felt like that kind of pain point to me. To tie this all back to the actual 4.19 RC4 release, no really, this is relevant, I actually think that 4.19 is looking fairly good. Things have gotten to the calm period before the release cycle, and I've talked to Greg and asked him if he'd mind finishing up 4.19 for me so that I can take a break and try to at least fix my own behavior. This is not some kind of I'm burnt out and I need to just go away break. I'm not feeling like I don't want to continue maintaining Linux quite the reverse. I very much do want to continue to do the project that I've been working on for almost three decades this is more like the time I got out of kernel development for a while because I needed to write a little tool called Git. I need to take a break to get help on how to behave differently and fix some issues in my tooling and workflow. And yes, some of it might be just tooling. Maybe I can get an email filter in place. So when I send an email with curse words, they just won't go out. But hey, I'm a big believer in tools. And at least some problems going forward might be improved with simple automation. I know when I really look myself in the mirror, it will be clear it's not the only change that has to happen. But hey, you can send me suggestions in email. I look forward to seeing you at the Maintainer Summit, Linus. Now, this has been pretty well accepted online. Most people are praising it. I have seen everything from, oh, that's kind of cool, that's no big deal, all the way up to, this is the first opportunity that Linux has had in its entire history to actually be A meaningful, respectful project that is inclusive to everybody. And I suspect that the truth is somewhere in between those two extremes, but I don't know. I guess the other farthest end of the extreme is that this is a horrible thing. Greg KH supports the idea. Greg KH wrote, the code of conduct. Or the code of conflict is not achieving the implicit goal of fostering civility. And in the spirit of being excellent to each other, explicit guidelines have demonstrated success in other projects, in other areas of the kernel. Here is a code of conduct statement for the wider kernel. Um, And they based it off of the contributor covenant. And uh, you can read more about the contributor covenant at contributor-covenant.org. Now, as soon as I saw that the code of conduct is based off of the contributor covenant, This is something again that Paul has talked about and that I have talked at length with Paul about. And it also had severe influence and impact on Southeast Linux Fest and a bunch of my friends. And so I'm very emotionally invested in this process. I am there, there is a lot of emotion attached to this. But I wanted to come on the air tonight and open a discussion as fairly. As I possibly can. So they voted on this code of conduct. They accepted this code of conduct. And now we are watching what people in the community are responding. My question to you, again, you can add your voice to the conversation. one 855 450 No, It's 855 450 If you're listening to this after it's been released, then you can send us an email live at asknoahshow.com. We'll take your feedback that way. Is this decision the best decision for linux or is it the best decision for a social agenda or are the one and are the are the are both of those the same thing because maybe they are maybe this is the one problem that linux had to overcome maybe we needed to be more inclusive maybe we needed to adopt some sort of code of conduct so that Linus does not run amok swearing and yelling and and telling people that they should be retroactively aborted. You can understand. I would not want to work at a place where when I walked into the building, my boss told me that I should be retroactively aborted. So I'm not saying that I am not. I'm trying to to come at this from a fairly neutral position because for me, I want Linux to be successful. I am not a kernel maintainer. I'm not a kernel developer but my entire business my paycheck is very much attached to the success of the linux kernel and thus the linux operating system my passion my hobbies are all tied to the success of the linux kernel and the linux operating system so i want what is best for linux and i'm willing to set aside my personal beliefs i'm willing to set aside my preconceived notions to have a discussion is this the best choice and I'm willing to consider that option, but I want to hear facts. I want to hear from people that can tell me why this is a better choice, not how it advan- how it advances any other agenda, but how specifically code is going to increase. And maybe there is somebody out there. Maybe there's somebody that I know that um, uh, I'm not sure if it's Miss or Ms., Mrs., but uh, Miss Sharp has said numerous times that she thinks we should have. Something like this in place, and I I I'm open to hearing that discussion. But I'm also I also have had enough of these kinds of discussions and been involved in these kind of groups to know that there is another side of this, and it's a side that we have presented for you before on the Ask Noah show. Some of the internet is already skeptical. Moments, and I do mean moments after this. Uh, news story broke you had people all over Twitter all over blogs all over every imaginable online media talking about the implications of this decision at Sarah May tweets there's no coming back any place he's welcomed in the future will be at the expense of the people that he has abused and belittled and drove away over decades of abusive behavior many of them will never go to any place he goes don't prioritize Linus's redemption over his victim's safety. And that right there. That kind of attitude, that kind of approach are the kind are, is basically the kind of thing that I can't stand. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody screws up. And you watch people from all of, i've seen people from all walks of life been able to f- turn over a new stone and start over and say I, I have new perspective on this and rather i personally agree with linus or not is irrelevant the point is he believes that he is now seeing a different perspective and instead of congratulating him instead of welcoming him over to the open arms of the this new code of covenant or this new code of conduct we immediately are starting to see the backlash. And I, I when I was doing show prep uh, last night and the night before, um, I came across an article where the, the, the basically the gist of the article is Linus apologizes, but is he serious? Is this real or is this just some sort of a scam? I'm not sure where the author from that article, which we'll have link free in the show notes, is coming from but I think it's detrimental to the discussion. It doesn't advocate either side, and it doesn't talk about the merits or demerits of either side. Speaking of merits, we need to address a story that is all the way back in 2014. And it is a story about GitHub and the company GitHub and a decision that they made to remove a rug in their lobby now, you wouldn't think that this is related, but follow. Stick with me. I promise it is. I promise I'm getting to a point here. This decision by GitHub, I believe, has had ripple effects all throughout the open source community. And so I want. I I went back. I found the article and. I, I, I just want to go back and kind of cover that a little bit to give some perspective because I want, when Paul Jones comes on, uh, in just a couple of moments, I want to talk to him about this and I want to get his take on this. So this article is, I think it's from, yeah, it's 2014 back from 2014 readwrite.com. You might not immediately notice the latest change to come to GitHub, unless you're standing in its San Francisco headquarters, looking down at the floor. GitHub has removed the centerpiece from its faux oval office waiting room, a circular mat with the phrase, United Meritocracy of GitHub. GitHub CEO Chris Wandsworth, who just stepped into the new role a few days ago, probably didn't expect his first reaction to involve furnishings. But while a simple change in office decor may not seem like a big deal on the surface, the removal of the rug signals a shift in GitHub's public image. GitHub's Julie Ann Horvath, a designer who founded the company's all-female lecture series Passion Projects, said the rug first became a problem when photos of it made their way into feminist discussions online. In theory, meritocracy should be a good thing. It basically boils down to a society in where people reap the rewards of their skill and effort. But as countless advocates for women and minorities in the tech world have pointed out, meritocracies are a lot messier in real life. The tech industry still isn't predominantly white and male because white men are so much better at their jobs than everybody else, but it's because white men have had more opportunities to succeed than their minority female counterparts. The false idea that the tech industry is a meritocracy hurts everyone. It allows Paul Graham to continue thinking that the founders who made it into the Y Combiner are the best of the best, not just the best people with the most privilege. It also furthers a culture of entrepreneur worship. Technology may be more meritocratic than any other industry, but not to the extent that you can attribute anybody's success solely to their own smarts and hard work. Opportunities, connections, socioeconomic status still matter. So do race and gender. GitHub aspires to be a meritocracy, which explains the founder's wording on the rug. But even though the company has made strides in hiring diversity thanks in part to passion projects, it's got further to go. Feminists like Hovarth worry that the word meritocracy glossed over the struggles of minorities who were trying to join the Czech community. Hovarth said that at first, the founders were hesitant to remove the rug because they didn't want to appear to be giving in to the demands of online bullies. But Hovarth said other women at GitHub began to feel as they were bearing the brunt of the rug's message, as well as being excluded from other communities as a result. One employee, Horvath says, thought she was being rejected for membership in Double Union, a feminist hacker space because of the rug. Double Union did parody the rug on a crowdfunding page, but denied that it would reject a possible member because of the rug. We may not be perfect here at GitHub, especially in the eyes of the feminist community, but it should never mean that our voices and opinions as women in tech should be ignored or devalued. We listen to one another, and we are working to make tech a better place for everyone. We saw a problem. We fixed it. We are moving forward and asking the community to move forward with us. There are no plans to auction off the old rug, but the new one has already been ordered. It's new slogan in collaboration. We trust. Um, meritocracy is not an excuse to be a jerk. And I, the, I don't want the rest of the episode to be overshadowed by, by that, because I know when, when Paul joins us, I know that that's going to be the driving force of the discussion. I accept and respect that there are probably socioeconomic advantages. I accept and respect that there are that there are differences as people and some people have to work harder to get to the same hill that others were, you know, essentially essentially born on. But I will defend to the death the idea that above all else meritocracy should prevail. Regardless of how we got to the various hills, whoever is standing on the highest hill, and the hill being whoever is, whoever is producing the best work, whoever is solving the most problems, whoever is writing the most efficient, best, best working code, whatever that person is, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their political belief, regardless of their sexual orientation, whoever that person is, that's the person for the job. And I can defend that argument pretty well. I'm pretty open to having a discussion about the rest of this, that particular point. I'm pretty dead set unless somebody has a really compelling argument. I don't think that diversity is more important than merit. And I know that is going to rub some of you the wrong way. And I'm sorry for that. As, as a geek, I feel like my nerd, my nerdism, my geekism set me apart from other people in school and growing up far more than uh, my skin color, for example, did. And I live in North Dakota. Okay, we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of diverse cultures in North Dakota. Right. And so my dad coming from India and having grown and, and, and having me and having grown up here, but having deep connections to my family, and my family's heritage. You would think that that's what made me a minority. It wasn't. It was, I like different music from the other people that were at school. I was interested in different things. While other kids in my third and fourth and fifth grade class were interested in a Super Nintendo or a Nintendo 64, I was interested in could I get a 386 to a 486 or could I finally get a laptop with a Pentium processor in it? Those were the kind of things that I cared about. And it made me a weird kid. But you know what? We have to embrace those differences because... I absolutely believe the fact that I didn't give up on that passion, that I didn't give up on that difference, that I embraced it, put me where I am today, which is making a lot of money selling open source solutions and being deeply involved with the Linux community, something I absolutely love. And the chat room has kind of caught on to this. Steve G in the chat room says, Linus has admitted that he is socially awkward, and at least now he recognizes it. Easy for me to say because I've had no interaction with him, but does he not not deserve some grace? And uh, then the major follows up with exactly when I read his statement, I thought it sounded like a textbook spectrum disorder. There and 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 actually, then there's as I'm reading this, somebody else writes. Uh, Takmav in the chat room writes, "You cannot dismiss attitude with age. It took me 39 years to get help for myself, and I'm still not real. I'm still not realizing the tip of the iceberg." So all of us. All of us nerds, we're a little weird. We're a little different. And we're by, our, by the very same things that make us really good at our jobs, for the same reason that we can look at a piece of technology and we don't get frustrated with it, when other people want to throw a computer across the room and we're the ones that are willing to sit down and work through the problem because we can problem solve our way out of a paper bag because the computer to us, it makes sense. It follows logic and reason and rationale. Those very things make us... Uh, we they make us socially weird. We are just socially awkward creatures. And if you want any evidence of that, attend any Linux fest. Just show up at one, and you'll find out exactly how weird Linux nerds can be. So uh, you know, th- I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think we owe Linus a little bit of respect here and a little bit of space and a little bit of understanding because at the end of the day, If I had to choose between diversity and Linus Torvalds, well, Linus Torvalds has given me Linux. And so far, I have not seen a huge value in diversity for diversity's sake. I don't think that we should exclude people because they are diverse or because they are different. But I also don't think we should elevate them because of that difference either. And if you disagree with me on that, you're welcome to speak up. I've just gotten word that Paul M. Jones is with us, so we're going to bring him up now and have a discussion with Paul M. Jones, -jones paul-m-jones.com. Make sure to follow him on Twitter, at pmjones. He has spoken out. He is an internationally recognized PHP expert. Um, He has been a guest speaker at various different conferences all around the United States, including my beloved Southeast Linux Fest. He was there last year to help break the news about how some of the political changes at self have happened and what it means for self. He joins us now on the Ask Noah show. Hey, Paul, welcome to the Ask Noah show.
2: Hey there, thanks for having me.
1: Hey, thanks for taking the time to be here, Paul. So uh, I just want to get into it. What is your reaction to the latest news that Linus Torvalds is temporarily stepping back from the Linux kernel?
2: So there's, it's hard to say what it's going to mean at this short interval from the announcement. My reaction is primarily one of I would guess I would say disappointment, but also that it seems like he has finally been worn down by the people that wanted him out to begin with. Uh, And so in that way, it is a a success for the people who want to take control of the Linux kernel and a big loss for anyone who wanted to keep the Linux kernel uh, under its proven good way of maintaining high quality.
1: Let me ask you this. A lot of people are saying that this is the first hope that we've had in a long time of building an inclusive community and this new code of conduct that the Linux kernel has adopted is in fact a positive thing. Why is that not true? Why is that a danger?
2: Well, it it depends on who it is that's saying it. Uh, To say that it's a positive thing is positive for whom is the question. Is it positive for people who are depending on quality maintainership of it probably not is my guess i will say i'll use this as an example when the founders of a project leave the project the project suffers uh we saw it we see it now just by one example is when steve jobs passed on would we say that apple's quality has improved or deteriorated in that intervening time i think it's commonly recognized that it's deteriorated I would expect the same thing here in terms of the Linux kernel, that is, in terms of the product that's being produced, the code that's coming out of it, the thing that that people rely on. The people who are saying this is a positive movement are not saying it's positive for the product. They're saying it's positive for a political purpose, that is, diversity and inclusion and all the things that go along with that. Uh, So as a political move, yeah, it's great for the people of that particular politics, but as a product move, I... I think it's a big negative.
1: Is diversity and inclusion, are those important things for a project?
2: Diversity and inclusion of what? If your point is to go with superficial diversity, that is diversity of hair color, gender, sex, race, these things are superficial. The thing that really matters is diversity of thought and inclusion of ideas that move the project forward in terms of the product not in terms of the, the organization where the organization is the primary goal. The organization is there only secondarily. It's there to, to, to move the project. The organization is not there for itself.
1: Okay. So you would be a proponent of meritocracy then?
2: Meritocracy or something remotely resembling it, all organizational structures, all project structures have flaws, and merit- meritocracy, co- as commonly understood, has its flaws as well. Uh, I will argue that those flaws are insignificant in relation to the flaws of other organizational strategies.
1: You've spoken numerous times about the dangers of the code of these codes of conduct. Obviously, they have adopted, I believe it was the Contributor's uh, Covenant, is that correct?
2: Contributor Covenant 1-4, if I understand correctly.
1: Is that a particularly dangerous code of conduct, and if so, why?
2: I, was, I would say yes. So the background on it is this, the person who put together the Code of Conduct. Coraline Ada Emke uh, has openly stated that the Code of Conduct, the Contributor Covenant, is a political tool, uh, Coraline has said this for years, that it is there to inject a particular kind of politics, social justice politics, into the open source movement, and thereby capture these projects as ways to use political leverage on people to keep them from contributing to projects that even they may have founded themselves. Uh, The whole point of the contributor covenant is to bind the person and the project and their politics all together so that they can't be separated from each other. So that if you say nothing at all about politics on project channels or within project channels, but you speak up on Twitter about a political topic that is against social justice in any way, then uh, the contributor covenant then becomes leverage for people who are social justice types to use against you to eject you from your own project or from a project that you participate in that is the primary danger here
1: so the idea is you it creates an echo chamber almost of thought and any sort of differing from that thought can be used as evidence to get rid of you out of your own project and and that and and what you're saying is that applies whether or not we're talking about the project or not. Maybe it's something totally outside of the project. Maybe it's it's maybe it's their you know their like you say their personal Twitter handle or their personal social media account, um, some sort of an event that is entirely unrelated to the project and yet that can be that can be held against them.
2: So the the thing we have to remember is that for the social justice type person, there is no separation between the political, political and the personal. You said earlier, uh, you know, what if you're doing saying things on your personal political handle. Right. Well, they will argue that you are always representing the project somehow and if whatever you do in non-project arenas is actually representative of how you're going to be in the project. They don't believe in any possibility of separation between those things. So that's the that's what they're working on. I believe that that is in a in a literal sense. That is a totalitarian Approach to things to say the personal is political is to say that there is no personal there is only the political.
1: What have we seen from other projects that have adopted uh, this a similar code of conduct has have their inclusion and diversity and all of those things gone up and has it resulted in a net positive of the project or have there been some problems?
2: So that's a fantastic question. This is one that I ask in my in the in a talk that I give about this particular subject. Uh, You asked, has there been a rise in inclusion and diversity after the uh, implementation of the Contributor Covenant or other social justice-derived codes of conduct? The answer is nobody knows. I am not aware anywhere of anyone doing a count of how many, shall we say, diversity and inclusion contributors there were before a Code of Conduct was implemented, and then how many there were after a Code of Conduct was implemented. Certainly people say that they feel better about the project because they like a code of conduct, or people say they feel worse about the project because they don't like a code of conduct. There's no numbers there. There's no way to measure it. In an engineering discipline, you would think that would be the first thing we would do, and yet that is not what we see happening. I do know of several instances of people leaving because of the implementation of a code of conduct. Uh, I'm also told that FreeBSD, after having adopted one, uh, has seen its chat boards dramatically drop in traffic. They've lost a lot of revenue and donations uh, after having adopted these. So again, it depends on how you measure. I have not seen any positive outcomes that are measurable in any way. And I have seen some negative outcomes that are measurable. But of course, again, the whole point is not that we are trying to improve the project in terms of the product being produced. They're trying to, quote unquote, improve the project in terms of it's political bearing. It's too late in a lot of ways. Uh, have you seen the 1970, I think it's 1979, Invasion of the Body Snatchers? hmm By the time that movie starts, you're two minutes into that movie, it's already over. It's already too late. Right. Everything that's necessary for human beings to lose is already in place, and it's just a slow-moving thing that waves, that washes over them. That is what has happened here. There's already been a long march through the institutions of open source. And this is the last one of the last big ones.
1: Paul, I want to ask you about this uh, thread that was in r slash Linux. Um, this morning, when I woke up and I was doing my show prep, um, I, I came across a thread in r slash Linux. It was titled, PHP's Paul M. Jones on Code of Conducts and the Contributor Covenant. It had 136 upvotes. It had, I don't know how many... Uh, Comments. I mean, it was a a very, very lively discussion. Obviously, I'm sure you're aware of it. Um, As we sit down to do the show now, it is gone. It has been taken off of Reddit. And I I just want to get your thoughts on censorship and an unwillingness to have an open discussion about the true merits and demerits about code of conduct.
2: So censorship is the whole point of the code of conduct. Uh, People will say that it's an abuse, but it's not. It's a way to use... Uh, these rules as sort of a, a fig leaf over the real desire, and the real desire is to shut down speech that social justice advocates disagree with. Uh, seeing that happen in R Linux should not come as a surprise to anybody. They don't want to argue on the merits. These, are, and Just as a side note, it's so funny to hear people who disagree with meritocracy wanting to say it needs to be discussed on the merits, uh, and that's exactly the opposite of what they want to do. What they want to do is for it to be passed, for the social justice code of conduct, contributor covenant in this case, to be passed without discussion, and then just have it be there. Uh, it's a variation on assuming that everybody has already agreed that the things that the contributor covenant thinks are bad are in fact already existent in a project and the only thing necessary now is to put in the code of conduct so that these evils will be abated. Um, But again, it begins by presuming that everybody is all already agreed and everybody is not all already agreed. There needs to be a discussion about it if it's going to be put in place in the first place and the people who want to put it in place, the people who want to make the change, should be the ones to defend their desires to have one put in place. They can't defend their desires, not in any measurable objective way, because it is a political document with political goals. That political goal being power over political opponents. And so they can't debate it on the merits. So what do they do? They capture the institution, they put themselves in moderator positions. And it starts out really nice. It, uh, Vox Day talks about this as entryism, the idea being that. You become a moderator, maybe you give a contribution or two, you work your way up in the organization, and then when you're in place and all of your friends are in place, suddenly the time is right. And it doesn't have to be conspiracy or collusion. It's just a shared worldview. Uh, and then when something comes along that supports your worldview and there are enough of your friends around, well, you know what? We can just make that happen. <laughs> you know what? I don't think that thread should be here, really. I think that thread is not helpful. We should get rid of it.
1: Right. And that's what's happening here on, on Reddit. They They just decided that... Somehow, the powers that be on our slash Linux have just decided that a thread about a code of conduct in a week, where a code of conduct has literally caused one of the most influential people in software history to step away from the most successful open source project in history, to step away from that project. Somehow, a discussion about the code of conduct and its merits and demerits is not relevant. I don't know how we arrive at that decision, but apparently, that's we got to roll with that. So the second most popular thread on r slash Linux this week was if a thread that was titled, explain to me why this new code of conduct is bad, be civil and don't bring up homonyms about the, the creator of it and all of those kind of things. So my question to you is, do you believe that the community at large shares the opinion that meritocracy is not worth something considering that the code of conduct is in fact a good thing, that this is the first hope we have for a uh, you know, a more welcoming community in the, in the Linux kernel development sphere. Do you think that's shared by the majority of the Linux community? Or is this a couple of people in the right positions that were able to get this, like you say, at the beginning of at the interview, that they wore him down?
2: I, I would argue that it's a couple of people in the right positions. It's probably more than a couple of people. Notice who signed off on the thing. Uh, it was a, a Facebook rep and an Intel rep. In a lot of what, so let me back up, your primary question was, do I think that it's the feeling of the majority of, of the Linux community that it's either necessary or not necessary? My guess is that the majority of the Linux community don't care. They don't care one way or another. How does it affect their daily lives? Okay, so what if there's been a, a change in the in code of conduct stuff? I've heard that, that unless it's kind of a jerk sometimes, maybe it's nice that he, not, that he not be a jerk. You know, I want people to be nice. It's just not that big a deal to me. That is my guess as to what the feeling most is most of the time. There are some people who are politically motivated ag- against uh, having a meritocracy and in favor of, a, uh, in favor of having something like the tr- Contributor Covenant in place. And those people care very deeply, but I'm guessing that is a, a minority when compared to the first group that just don't care. And then there's a, another group that sees the Contributor Covenant as an active poison, uh, that is, or an, an active infection. Of the Linux kernel development process, I'm also guessing that that is a smaller group, even than the second one. That is, most people don't care. The vast majority don't care. A large number, uh, or rather a, a a smaller number, care but want it, and an even smaller number care but don't want it.
1: What can we do as a community, as the Linux community, to foster a better relationship or? or I guess sort out this mess, or is it too late? Has the ship sailed? Is there anything that we, as the larger Linux community, can do to tell these people, you are screwing with something sacred and you need to back off a bit?
2: What power do you have?
1: Well, we have the power of numbers, right?
2: Numbers to do what?
1: I I, I guess I would argue that we, as the the larger Linux community, when we decide to move mountains, we're able to do that in a lot of ways. And we've, we've been able to overcome a lot of Obstacles that people in the proprietary world told us we would never be able to do and sure. so I, I guess I just wonder if every if all of those people if it is if the the community at large begins to understand this issue and they hear people like yourself who who explain this in a very calm rational way um, and and talk about the the true merits and true demerits of it if we you know essentially rise up band together and say listen we're just not going to accept this do do we have a chance or is that is it too late.
2: I, I I honestly I don't know two or three years ago, maybe there would have been a chance or there would have been a much better chance two or three years ago. Is there still a chance now? yeah, maybe, but again i i I struggle to imagine what one could do or even a thousand Linux users could do, aside from i mean i don't I, I really don't know aside from somehow being able to take the institution back somehow because this is that's what has happened here. There's been an institutional capture. Of the Linux kernel development process and everything that goes along with it. Uh, you could say, well, "Okay, well, you know what? We're just going to fork the code. We're going to use something else, or we'll, we'll take the Linux kernel as it is now, we'll fork it, and we'll start developing on it without, uh, you know, without a code of conduct in place." The problem is that the problem with that is that you've lost the institution already. You've lost all of the users. You've lost all of the funding. It's not there anymore. It's not enough merely to have the code in place you need to have the institution around it and the institution has been captured away from you at this point by people who are avowedly your political enemies. Uh, so again it's hard for me to imagine what you would, you know, what action you could take aside from screaming out loud, flooding the mailing list and saying we don't, you know, we like we don't like this, we think this is terrible. Their response is be okay, you don't like it. You know what? You can go along. You know, you don't like it? We get it. That's fine. Go on your way. We're here now. Uh, and that's that's what I see happening in these places, in, you know, in, in other places. So again, I I'm not trying to be defeatist, but I'm saying you got to figure out how you're going to capture the institution back. Uh, and I remembered what I was going to say earlier when uh we, you were asking, you know, what's the how do people feel about it? Mm-hmm. You know, and Linus is the one who signed off on it. But you got to remember, go back and look at that commit. It's Facebook and Intel that signed off on this commit. Uh, they're the ones who approved it. Oh, well, Greg KH K- supports it though too. Um, my understanding who does Greg KH work for?
1: K- uh, Linux Foundation.
2: Linux Foundation, but who, has he been previously aligned with some other organizations?
1: I'm not sure. He's he's a he's a he's a kernel he's one of the kernel developers.
2: Right, right. So, and you know what? Maybe he is subject to the same pressures that Linus Linus was subject to. I don't know. The, point, the larger point that I'm trying to make is that, in a lot of ways, the contributor covenant repre- represents an injection of corporate HR policy into the Linux kernel development process. Uh, it is, in many ways, a manifestation of, or a metastization of, uh, corporate HR policy into you know, an open source project, and we've got to wonder if that's really that great of a thing.
1: What did you personally see in the PHP community? Because that's kind of what got you started on all of this. Tell me that story. What what happened? How did you get involved in anti-code of conduct, I guess, as, as it were? And I know that's not an accurate yeah. description. <laughs>
2: that, no, that's that's fair. And, and and to be clear, you know, the the code of conduct itself, a any code of conduct, loosely defined, may or may not be a good thing. It is specifically social justice derived codes of conduct, like the Contributor Covenant, that I find. Poisonous and effective and destructive. Uh, again, because they are intended as tools to give leverage over political enemies in a project. Uh, my personal involvement was in starting in January of 2016 uh, when uh, somebody tried to use the PHP RFC process to propose the introduction of the Contributed Code of Covenant. I had read about it before and I hadn't really thought about it too much after having read about it, other than to note that this was. Uh, again, a, a political document for political purposes and that it you know it looked pretty bad, but my God, it's certainly not going to be any project that, that I'm running. But it did not occurred to me at the time that someone might try to apply it to a higher level project, something like PHP or something like that. Uh, so as soon as it was proposed, uh, I responded to the email, the mailing list, uh, with perhaps less restraint than I should have and started arguing against it over the course of, I don't recall now, a month, maybe two months, maybe less. Uh, it was successfully, it's hard to say it was successfully argued down because to succeed in an argument, you need to convince the other person. Nobody was convinced on this. Uh, people who were already in favor, stayed in favor. People who were already against it, stayed against it. We had There were a few people uh, who were on the fence who converted to the anti-side I don't know how many people were converted to the pro side on that one. Uh, in any case, it was argued to a standstill. The proposal was rejected; was uh, withdrawn by the original proposer, and then some other person immediately picked it up and re-proposed it. But it has stayed in proposal mode. It has not been either adopted or rejected. It's not been voted on. So in a way, it's a, it's a stalemate. But in this case, a, a stalemate is a win for people who favor a free and open society and freedom of speech. So that's my initial involvement, and it was ugly. Uh, the people that I thought were my professional colleagues suddenly turned and started screeching at me as if I was the most horrible thing, the most horrible person in the world, as if I personally had, I don't know, killed somebody. You know, their political desires were being thwarted, and mm-hmm. that's a very painful thing. And so that, that was the response that I was getting. I was not psychologically prepared for that the moment it happened, but I very quickly realized it was happening and, and responded psychologically appropriately to that. So one of the things, again, when I talk about this in my in my presentation, I say you need to be ready. These people that you thought were your, were your colleagues, your peers, your compatriots, your acquaintances, will suddenly turn around. I mentioned Invasion of the Body Snatchers before. I'll do it again here. You're going to mention it. The whole room is, you're going to say, maybe the code of conduct isn't a good idea. The whole room is going to turn around and look at you, and you're going to realize you're the last human being in the, war, in the room. Uh, they're going to start screeching at you. It's a, it's a really alienating feeling thing until you realize again that that's the whole purpose, is to excommunicate people that don't agree. Uh, There was a further excommunication attempt on me shortly thereafter. Uh, I don't know if that's appropriate for discussion here or not. Let's just say that it didn't end with the stalemate that the people who argued in favor of the code of conduct, having had their political will thwarted, then decided to come after me in other arenas. Again, you look at the Contributor Covenant, and on first reading, this seems totally reasonable. Don't be discriminatory. Don't be a jerk. Be nice to people. Don't harass. And don't exclude people. I mean, every nerd listening to this, when they were in elementary school and high school, has a story about how they were bullied, uh, how they were, you know, know, quote-unquote harassed, because they were smarter than everyone else, because they liked things that other people didn't like because they were interested in stuff that was simply not popular. Everyone listening to this has a story of that. They know what that feels like. So when we see someone else saying, don't bully, don't harass, be nice, be inclusive, we respond to that very positively. We're like, I know what that feels like. I don't want to do that to anyone else. You know what? No one else should be doing that either. Yes, the contributor covenant is a good thing for that reason. And that's because the people listening who are, not nominally in favor of the code of conduct, because they are good people. They have goodwill to begin with. And they don't see the contributor government as a political tool right off the bat. They see it as a way to to make sure that people are treated nice. But then when it gets in place, the people who wanted to use it suddenly start using it again as leverage over political opponents. So that, that nice feeling that you had about not wanting to See anyone else be treated the way you felt you had been treated, and prevent other people from having that fe- that negative feeling that you had. Suddenly, that has been used against you, and you didn't know it. Your goodwill was used as a weapon against you. And then it only gets worse because now it's gonna, you're going to say something as a good person, and someone's going to turn around and you say that's sexist, that's racist, that's that's you know homophobic or bigoted or you know, whatever. And you, being a good person, are immediately going to say, "Oh no, no, I know what it feels like to be." spoken out against because you're different. I don't want you to think that I'm doing that to you. I'm so sorry. Please tell me what I can do to make you feel like I'm not a racist, bigoted, homophobe, whatever, anymore. And the person comes back, the social justice person that you said comes back and says, I'll tell you how to make up for it. Do what I tell you. And that's it. The game is over. They have their political power over you now. Um, ESR talks about this as, in several variations as what he calls a Kafka trap. The idea that, again, your goodwill is being used against you and that the very thing that you are not, you are accused of being and you in defense of yourself not being that succumb to the will of the social justice advocate.
1: Last question, Paul. What does the future of Linux look like? We've talked a little bit about what has what we've seen other projects do when they adopt the Code of Covenant. We've talked a little bit about what happens when the leader of a project steps back. Linux is such an important part of our society, not just as technologists but as human beings. In you know worldwide, we depend on Linux in every aspect of our life. What does this mean for Linux?
2: So, what does it mean for Linux as a project, uh, as a, as a collection of code on which we depend? Uh, this world is—I I, say—I've said this for years. This world is very fragile. Uh, there's a great paper called How, "How Complex Systems Fail," written by a surgeon. Uh, he says that all of these complex systems that we have are continuously defended against failure. There's a continuous input of energy to make sure that these things don't fall apart. Whether it's the electrical grid or the radio system or plumbing or you know just. Any, any complex system that you can think of requires a constant input of energy to make sure that it doesn't fall apart. Uh, and the moment you stop putting that energy in or the moment you start doing things that are maybe not so great in one area, but nothing happens right now, and then you do something that's not so great in another area, and you know nothing happens there, and then you do a third thing, and suddenly the whole thing falls apart catastrophically. Uh, I will assert that the Linux kernel is like that. It is a complex system, and when it fails, it's going to fail not immediately, but it's going to fail from not having had the proper effort being applied to it continuously. And I think this is the beginning of the failure of that effort being applied to it. Uh, Again, time will tell. I could be completely wrong. But we will know in a year or two or three, maybe less, uh, how well it's going, because we will be able to see the quality of the kernel as things progress. But again, my, my pessimistic outlook, and one of the, the great and terrible things about being a pessimist is that you're, you're right more often than you're wrong, and that all surprises are good surprises. I will argue that we will see it happening sooner rather than later, and, then, and again, like I said, it won't happen all at once, but it'll happen eventually, and I think it'll be directly tied to this
1: internationally recognized PHP expert and public speaker Paul M. Jones on Twitter at PM Jones, Paul M jonescom Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the Ask Noah program. We appreciate it. We'll get you back on the program real soon.
2: Thanks a lot. I look forward to it.
1: Um, I just want to end with the fact that all I know for sure is I want the best for Linux. So if that means a code of conduct, so be it. If that means some someone other than Linus get involved and take over, so be it. I'm willing to check my personal beliefs. I'm willing to ch- put aside my personal politics. I just want the best for Linux. And hopefully, if we can't agree on anything else, we can agree on that. We're going to come back to this discussion. Uh, I know Michael wants to chime in in the mumble room, it looks like, but I got a call. We're going to go to the phones. one 855 450 855 450 George calls us from New York. Hey, George, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
0: Hey, Noah, how's it going?
1: Excellent. Thanks for hanging in there throughout the interview. Uh, how can we help?
0: All right, this is, I'll try to make it quick, I know time is limited. Um, this is the situation, my friend in my church is streaming like what's going on in the church for those you know, who can't make it, you know, make it out. Mm-hmm. So um, I figure the old nerd motto is uh, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. I figure there's got to be a more robust or a better way to uh, do it than just, you know, using a cell phone and definitely uh, involving Linux in it somehow.
1: I've known you for 35 you know seconds. You how, um, how to do that. Yes, I do. I've known you for 35 seconds, and you're already you've already risen like four character notches in my book. So the answer, George, to your problem is a is a USB professional USB video capture card, and the one that I would recommend is one made by a company called Madwell. It's a USB 3.0 HDMI capture card that will take a 1080p signal. So you can use any camera from the Sony Handycam for 299 bucks at Best Buy all the way up to, we have like a $7,000 uh, broadcast camera that we take out when we do events, and we have used both of those with this these little magical capture cards, and they are absolutely fantastic. JB1, this is what powers all of the video capture that's there. Anytime you're watching the Asnoa show, all of our video assets are being captured with those as well, so I use the heck out of them. They're absolutely fantastic. We'll totally solve your problem
0: i knew you could do it thanks very much
1: hey man thanks for the call again one 855 450 No, it's 855-450-6624 the email live at com. did you know you can join us in our interactive mumble room it's right head over to mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org and there you can add your voice to the conversation michael Tanel from tux digital joins us hey michael welcome to the ask noah show hello thank you for having me yeah so you have a slightly different take on this than paul you are you kind of support this idea uh, and
0: I support the idea of a code of conduct mainly because the like they already had something similar. They called it a code of conflict, but it was just kind of say if there's con- there's some any kind of conflict, they would have a way to address it. So the idea of having something, having a document that they could reference to say this is how we are going to address things because of these particular situations. I don't think that inherently is a bad th- a bad thing.
1: Okay, what is your answer? How do you respond to the idea that when people violate the code of conduct? Not inside of the uh, not inside of the community space, but totally departed from that. So they post their personal politics on their personal Facebook page, and those those personal views are deemed non-inclusive, and those people are then ejected from the project.
0: I think that personal views should be irrelevant to project or company or stuff like that. It depends if they're a representation of it. So could- if someone is paying paid to be a representation, like maybe they are, being paid to be an advertiser for it or an influencer for them, then their stuff outside does relate to their, you know, because that their direct job is to be an influencer and be a representation. But if they're not, and they are just doing their own thing outside, I think that should be irrelevant.
1: So in your view, then if you work for someplace, you take a paycheck, then it's your job to conform to whatever the politics of the organization are, even if you disagree with them.
0: It's your job to, not conform but it's your job to not express it on behalf of the company. Right, but I don't I, think once you're outside of the company, I don't care. Right. It depends on if your job if your job is specifically to represent the company, then it you should be because that your job is to represent the company, automatically you should be whatever they say because you took you took that job.
1: Right, right. No, I guess I can understand. That's a good uh, this is a good talk. And and like I said, I open the program doesn't have to just be today. If there's somebody out there that says my cousin, my brother, my sister, my friend, me, I Uh, There's a point that you're missing. There's something you're not covering, Noah. I want you to come on the program. Of course, Michael, you know you always have an open invitation to join us. (laughs) Thank you. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email live at AskNoahShow.com. This week, I had a chance to do some really fun outreach work. I was over hanging out with my friends from the Linux in the Ham Shack. Now, if you haven't heard of this podcast, it's a really fantastic podcast about Linux and Tam Radio, two of my favorite things. And so they gave me a call. They said, hey, you know what? We want to have you on the podcast. We want to talk about audio in Linux and advanced audio in Linux. So everybody kind of knows how to, you know, get their speakers to play or maybe how to get, uh, you know, a USB audio input into your computer. That kind of stuff is pretty you know, pretty well understood. But how do you take audio from one computer encode it over IP packets, send it over a network, pull it into another computer or maybe into a broadcast console and uh, manipulate that audio, adding effects and compression and all of that, and then send it back out over the air? Well, I've been doing that for a couple of years. I've had a lot of fun doing it. I've learned a ton of things. And so they asked me if I'd stop by and chat with them about how you can use some of those audio tools, both for podcasting, but also for ham radio because obviously audio is very important in ham radio and of course that is a place where you can experiment with technology so you can take audio and try to get it to sound as good as you can and then send that out over the ham radio airwaves and these guys do a fantastic job they've been doing this show for a long long time and uh, so I was really honored to uh, to to be asked to be a part of this and um, we'll have a link for you in the show notes to the exact episode so if you want to check that out you're welcome to do so also, if you enjoyed the, the the political side of this discussion today, I just want to remind everybody I am working part time over at a talk radio station, News Radio 1310 KNOX and 1079 FM in Grand Forks. I'll be there tomorrow, 12 to 2. You can listen, of course, if you're in the Grand Forks area at 1310 AM or 1079 FM, but you can also tune into the live stream at knoxradio.com. And um, I, I have a couple of ideas, don't want to spoil the topics quite yet but we'll have those uh, we'll have those available tomorrow and of course they have a a phone number you can call in 701-775-5559 you can add your voice to that conversation and we can chat politics it'll be a good time Hey, did you know this episode is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right. To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and materials referenced in this episode. You can get the latest, of course, by following us on Twitter at asknoahshow. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone system, Ben, our producer, and Simon Quigley filling in his call screener this hour. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com.